Uh, it's going to be initially 14 chapters. Please turn over to the back side of your outline, and you will see the, the titles. And I'm taking an idea that uh, would not have occurred to me uh, from a book called An Eschatology of Victory by J. Marcellus Kick, uh, where what he does is he examines uh, Matthew 24 and Revelation 20 uh, in, the, uh, in the book in some detail, uh, the, what's called the, the, the Mount Olivet Sermon. And uh, he, uh, what, he has about a 30, 35-page uh, introduction where he covers uh, Matthew 24 and Revelation 20 in kind of a survey sort of way. And then the rest of the book, he goes back and covers it again for like 150 or 200 pages in a much more detailed kind of way. And that's what I've decided to do about this kingdom of God uh, situation. Uh, I'm going to cover in a very survey, very brief overview kind of way, 14 topics about the kingdom of God in the next 14 Sundays. Then I'm going to take each one and go back through them and make each one of them a mini-series of anywhere from three or four weeks to a dozen weeks uh, for probably around three years, uh, if, uh, if Lord willing and if I am able to stay on track. Our theme verse for this series is going to be Matthew 6.10, where Matthew says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, the prayer uh, is placed right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, up until uh, the 1920s, was considered for the first 1900 or so years of church history to be the fundamental foundational teaching of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, to be a disciple. Uh, certain theories crept in that we'll look at in this series later, that said, oh, that's such a high goal, it must be for after Jesus comes back, uh, after the second coming of Christ. I think for the most part, most Christians have sort of restored the Sermon on the Mount since that time to uh, a foundational teaching of, about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And in it, Jesus mentions the kingdom a number of times, but right in the smack in the middle of the sermon, he talks about uh, how to pray and what to pray for. And this is not so much a prayer to be memorized and quoted as it is an outline of themes that the, that the church should be both praying for and working toward. And this is probably the primary statement of the whole prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, it's very important to just make the logical assumption that uh, the Lord would never ask us to pray for something that we're not always also working toward. In other words, if we're supposed to be praying for the nations, well, then we're supposed to be discipling the nations and so forth. Um, whatever he's called us to pray for. So his goal is to take the kingdom of heaven and bring it to earth so that his will is done as perfectly on earth and as willingly with cheerfulness and zeal and volunteerism on earth as it is in heaven. That has always been God's goal from Genesis 1. The Garden of Eden 
was uh, the beginning of a theme that runs throughout the scripture of garden, temple, city, where God is taking the, the perfection of heaven and bringing it to the earth. Adam and Eve were supposed to be the vice regents of God, having a relationship with God under his lordship, uh, obeying his command not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, zoologically classifying the animals, tending the garden, and uh, being fruitful and multiplying and sending out the sons and daughters of God through the four rivers that went out to all the earth to spread the manifest presence of God in all the earth. God's goal, as the prophet says, is for as truly as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of God. Now, it has become very popular. Uh, an idea began to started in the 19th century and really started to take hold by the 1890s, uh, kind of swept most Protestant groups, at least by the 1920s, that that was only going to happen sometime after the second coming of Christ. You, many of you may have heard of a theologian of the late 1800s named Charles Spurgeon. When that, when that idea began to grow, he actually there's a quote that you can read on the back of a book called Paradise Restored, which you're reading right now. And uh, on the jacket, Spurgeon says, this idea is uh, bound to become very popular because it doesn't require much faith, much zeal, or much effort. Um, Char Some of you know uh, a book called When Heaven Invades Earth by Bill Johnson, and he says we ought to be a little skeptical of any theory of the future that requires no faith, no commitment, no obedience, or no zeal to, uh, to uh, see come to pass. So today, if you ask most Christians what, and I've actually done this uh, more and more to try to see if, if this is correct, and, it, and it, I'm unfortunately finding out it is correct. If I ask most Christians, what do you think the kingdom of heaven is? They think it has something to do with going to heaven after you die. But the kingdom of heaven is the major theme of the whole Bible, and it has to do with God's bringing his kingdom and his reign and his Holy Spirit and his glory, his presence, progressively into the hearts of men, and, and through them out to the world. And so that's what we're really going to look at in this series. Um, it, and it's really not the pop, most popular current Christian idea. In fact, I read a, a book about this subject by N.T. Wright called uh, How God Became King, which is a study of the four Gospels. And when talking about the idea that God wants to put his kingdom into the church and into the hearts of men, and from there to, uh, to spread it to the world and so forth, he said, basically said, very few people have this kind of kingdom thinking, although it's the major message of the whole Bible. And he's, he claims that there would be no willingness to believe that. Uh, in the church today. In other words, what he's saying is that that's a message so challenging to us as disciples of Christ that uh, most people would prefer to just keep the uh, kingdom of heaven has to do with when I die and go to heaven kind of thing. Because, of course, if you buy into this, it will shape your maturity, your commitments, your 
values, your attitudes, your motivations. It'll shape everything. It'll totally revolutionize your your walk with God and cause you to love him in a way that uh, is in keeping with the first several commandments. So um, the during the days that Jesus walked the earth, there was a different notion of the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. By the way, in case you don't know it, uh, Matthew, except for in a couple places, uses the phrase the kingdom of heaven, and all the other writers of the New Testament use the phrase the kingdom of God. And there's uh, not just a random reason for that. Matthew was targeting his gospel to the Jewish people who had crucified their Messiah, and only a remnant of, of Jews uh, were, were becoming Christians and joining the New Testament communities throughout the Roman Empire. There were Jews spread throughout the Roman Empire. And uh, all the apostles followed the same model you see Paul following in Acts, where they would first go to the synagogue and proclaim the kingdom of God is, is now and here and manifest in Jesus Christ, repent and receive Christ and, and follow the king, king of the kingdom, Jesus Christ, and so forth. And uh, then they would go to the Gentiles in the city. And all the early churches were mixed with Jews and Gentiles. However, the, G the Jews that rejected that message began to chase the apostles from city to city in order to stone them, persecute them, get them arrested, or, and otherwise hinder this, that message. Uh, those who receive the last move of God will always persecute those who are in the current move of God. That you can see that in Galatians 5. So Matthew uses the word heaven because of his target audience, because the Jews of his day considered most of the names for God, like El Adonai, the Lord, or YHWH, which is called the Tetragrammaton, sometimes pronounced Yahweh or Jehovah. They considered that too holy of a name so that it would be impossible to say that name without taking the name of the Lord your God in vain. We think of taking the name of the Lord your God in vain as... Is, using the Lord's name when you, you know, hit your thumb with the hammer when you're fixing something around the house. But they considered it, and the Bible considers it really, uh, to call yourself by the name and then not back up your, your walk by your talk by your walk. So to say, I'm a Christian, but to not live in accordance with so, both in your private uh, life and your prayer closet, your family, and in your public life. That's what it means to take the name of God in vain. So Matthew, in his attempt to reach a Jewish audience, opts for the phrase kingdom of heaven, where all the other writers use the, the phrase the kingdom of God. It's as simple as that. Um, so from there, I, what I'm trying to do in each of these series, or each of these first 14 chapters, is frame, frame, the, uh, frame it with a question followed by the title of what I uh, normally would have called the title. So my question for this one, is there a central... Uh, comprehensive, overriding, or dominant theme of all Scripture. What is the Bible all about? That's the question for today. What is the Bible all about? And the answer is yes, the Bible is all about the kingdom of God. It's the primary principle and prevailing uh, motif or topic of all Scripture. So today what I'm going to do is just cover that fact in sort of a... Uh, tip of the iceberg, broad survey kind of way. Uh, once we go through all 14 lessons, I'll actually come back to this question and, and go through, do a Sunday on each of the major sections of the Bible, one or two on the Pentateuch, uh, at least one on the uh, 
on the other historical pro books, one on the wisdom literature, one on the major prophets, uh, possibly combine the major and minor prophets in one week, uh, one on the gospels, maybe two on the gospels, th maybe three, uh, followed by uh, Acts, and uh, I'll, I'll probably do like Matthew, uh, John, then I'll do Luke and Acts together or something like that and then followed by the Pauline epistles and the non-Pauline epistles. We'll look at the kingdom of God in more detail. What I'm doing here is actually just using scriptures that specifically use the phrase kingdom and that sort of thing. But for instance, when we get to the, uh, to the part, just as, uh, what do they call this in, in, the, uh, in, in um, news, they call it uh, something that makes you come back after the commercial. There's a ter term for that. Uh, a teaser. It's teaser. Is the who said teaser? That's it. So hopefully this will be a teaser for you to stay with the series. Uh, for instance, if you read the New Testament epistles, they actually don't make any sense to the way we do church today, where you primarily go to a church service on a Sunday, but you don't have that much community and dis and mutual discipling and and uh, fellowship and praying together and counseling one another and working together in a mission to uh, serve kids in the neighborhood or reach out to a university or, or what have you, uh, strengthen marriages. You know, the, the New Testament letters are written to people living not in a communal, share one purse, communistic way, but definitely in a much higher view of interaction, fellowship, and community than we experience in our, in our radically individualistic culture today. And so that's because the Bible sees the, the church as the community of the king. It's a city set on the hill. It's a group of people living a counterculture way of life so that they can say, okay, you might think this one brother at Wright State is too zealous, but look at how the 30 of us are living. You might be able to dismiss uh, some of the guys who work, at, uh, do stuff at the school down there, like, oh, they're just nutty for Jesus. You know, that's one in a hundred Christians is nutty for Jesus. But if a body of people is nutty for Jesus, you can't dismiss it so easily. And that was really Jesus and Paul, Peter's, their, their whole agenda was to build a community of people living under the lordship of Jesus Christ so deeply, so radically, that their, that their way of life had a different spirit, uh, that had the power of the Holy Spirit flowing all the time, not just in worship meetings, that had, the, uh, that had a, a mutual service and a mutual taking care of one another and so forth, that demonstrated a different kingdom than the kingdoms of this world. One of the things we're gonna deal with as we go through this series is the Bible always juxtaposes the kingdoms of this world with the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ from Genesis on. There, from the beginning, after Cain kills Abel and God raises up Seth to carry the righteousness of God in, in, in the Seth line, there's the Cain line of men who are murderers and violent all the time, who are sexually immoral, who uh, have no consciousness of God in the way they live, and they oppose in every way all the time the people of God. All the way through the Bible, we'll see that the people of this world always oppose the people of the kingdom. 
So with that in mind, let's get into this idea that it's the central topic of all scripture, and we'll start in the Gospels and Acts. You may recall that I have taught on this before, that when, when certain writers of the New Testament wrote the Gospels and the book of Acts, they were self-consciously trying to write a new Pentateuch. They understood that the Hebrew scriptures were based on the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, that God had acted in history and that they were historically valid and that God had written a story in that history and he had given his law in that history and he had formed a people for his own possession in that history as he's always been trying to do. That's always been his overriding goal. And that that people for God's own possession had a very mixed uh, report card, you might say, as to their obedience and their ability to follow God and manifest his kingdom. So much so that, say, in Exodus, he had killed uh, an entire generation, except for Joshua and Caleb. And even Moses, in a prefiguring of Christ, had to die before Joshua Jesus led the people into the into the promised land, which is a pre-shadowing, a pre-foreshadowing of, of Christ leading us into the kingdom. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, uh, all of these are aware that they're writing a new Pentateuch. And in fact, Matthew really, you can tell from the structure of his writings, he thought his one book in itself was a new Pentateuch. Luke believed that Luke and Acts was a new Pentateuch and, and kind of a new the, that that the Luke itself was a new Pentateuch, whereas Acts was kind of a new the twelve historical books, uh, because the, of course the historical books start with Joshua, Jesus crossing the rivers of bap baptism, the Jordan River, for a new generation, uh, and beginning to uh, infiltrate, occupy, and and take the kingdom in a geographical sense, just as we are supposed to in a different sense. So. Uh, John also uh, starts with, in the beginning was the word. He, his opening lines uh, are a parallel to Genesis 1's opening lines on purpose. Now, after these books were written, which were all written by the, the mid-60s AD within uh, less than a generation of the resurrection, approximately 30 to 33 years, all the books of the New Testament were written, and the churches received them as a new scriptures. Now, the church always affirmed that the 39 books of the Old Testament that the Hebrew rabbis had always believed were the word of God and had put their formal seal on it about 90 BC, the church always received those scriptures as their scriptures. Um, and that was uh, true up until uh, the Reformation and the Council of Trent when the, the Roman Catholic branch of the church added six other books called the Apocrypha. And up until then, the church had always said, well, they're not inspired scripture, but they are good history and they are uh, spiritual writings and they are um, valuable for, for studying and, and, and meditating on and so forth. And that was quite different than the, the church's opinion on what's called the, the Apocrypha and the Pseudopigrapha, the, the, like the Gospels of Thomas, the Gnostic Gospels, and so forth, which the church always opposed. 
And if you read any of that nonsense, like Daniel Brown and all these people are trying to bring to the foray and trying to say that they're valid gospels too and so forth, you'll see that they have a quite different message about everything, and especially about who Jesus is and what his mission is. Anyone who knows the scriptures will, in a very first reading, say, wow, these are quite, uh, quite opposite in ideas. So after the, the books were written and they started to be copied and circulated among the churches, the idea emerged that together they really formed a new Pentateuch. The four Gospels in the book of Acts are five books uh, covering God's actions in history and fulfilling everything that he had foreshadowed in the first 17 books of, of the uh, Old Testament, uh, what we call the Old Testament, which is probably better called the Hebrew Scriptures. So with that in mind, I'm just going to skim over some basic highlights of uh, those books, and then try to uh, give us a, uh, a, a couple basic highlights out of two New Testament writers, the most common, Peter and Paul, and then finally, some basic highlights from the Old Testament. If you uh, are new to these ideas, and if you're skeptical, uh, please understand my dilemma is always, should I do it this surfacey and this survey-like? Because if somebody wants to oppose that, you know, I'm not developing these things very well. Uh, I assure you that when we go back and spend quite a few weeks, probably seven or eight weeks on uh, the kingdom of God being the primary theme in all scripture, I'll be presenting it in, in a way that's completely irrefutable. You'd have to be wanting to, to deny the, the, the scriptures to not see it. But today, I'm just going to give us a few glimpses at it. So Matthew has over 50 references to the kingdom in, in the book of Matthew. I don't want to get into today uh, that there are actually some competing uh, opinions on, the, on which is the most valid Greek New Testament text, but uh, if you use one, there's like 56 references to the kingdom, and the other one has like 53 references to the kingdom, and, and there, there are some slight discrepancies that really amount to nothing much. Um, I've already talked about why Matthew uses the word phrase kingdom of heaven. So Matthew starts out, of course, uh, with a kingdom genealogy. I won't go into all that. Uh, and then the angel visiting Mary and Joseph's dreams and their flight to Egypt and all this. And so I'm going to pick it up in Matthew 3 when Jesus' cousin John the Baptist, who uh, you know, the angel had appeared to Zechariah when he was in the temple, uh, and and uh, he was born, and you know, most of you know the the visit of Mary to uh, Elizabeth and their prophecies, and in Luke, that are recorded in Luke and so forth. John the Baptist, as an adult, starts his public ministry, and the very first thing he says is, "Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand." That's his opening line. Now, theologians have struggled with how to translate that passage because. The literal Greek means the kingdom of God is at hand. It's, it's something you can grab with your hands right now. So some translations will say it's in your midst or it's near you. But no matter how you think of it, it's not a future age or heaven. The kingdom of God is now, according to John, therefore, turn, repent means Mentanoia is a Greek word. Change your mind and your heart and your ways 
and turn toward the pursuit of God. In a nutshell, that's what repent means. Change your life from being about, you know, your concerns, girlfriends and popularity and fame and whatever shallow narcissistic thing you're chasing and chase the love of God, the glory of God, intimacy with God and fulfilling his purpose for your life. Try to live your life that you're crying out for grace and you're repenting and you're confessing your sins every day so that God can root out of you anything that's competing for the love of God. That's what it means to repent. That's why it's a daily foundation of the Christian life. There's over 120 scriptures on repentance just in the New Testament alone. Jesus, interestingly, uh, we could talk about his water baptism, the spirit descending on the spirit, taking him through the wilderness. But when he's done with that whole process, he comes out in the power of the spirit. And the first thing he says is from that time, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's stealing a line from John the Baptist, so to speak. Or at least they're in deep simpatico. You know, they, they're seeing eye to eye about this whole thing. This is the issue. Turn. Change your heart. Change your mind. Uh, the kingdom of God is right now. Get into it. The violent men will take it by force and so forth. We've already covered that in Matthew 6, in the middle of praying, Jesus says that what we're supposed to be praying for, working toward, the, our goal is supposed to be thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth that is, is in heaven. That's not some, you know, God would not, God is not a teaser of you. He doesn't give you compassion for the lost or, or a zeal to see his name glorified and so forth and then say, no, 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 that's for like some future distant thing after I come back. There's nothing that's going to happen about that your whole life, even though that's the burning passion of your heart if you love me. God's not like that. God gives you that burning passion of your heart to see his name glorified because he wants that to motivate you to study and, and build character and, and find the right team of people to work with. And he wants to see that manifest to some degree in your life. in the neighborhoods around you, in, in the school, the college around you, or what, wherever he's called you to become a fisher of men. So it's no surprise that also right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, seek first, or per, above all, pursue. Seek first is uh, ESV in New American Standard. But the, I like the NET, a new translation I'm doing a lot with lately that a young lady named Gwen in the Right State Ministry told me about. I actually was not even aware of that translation until a couple months ago. Um, you know, it says, above all pursue. That's, that's, I, like to, I like stuff that says the same thing a different way so it makes you think about it afresh. So, above all pursue. What are you pursuing? Is what Jesus is saying. What what. It, if you really were honest about what you spend your day on and what your deepest concerns are about and so forth, is it pursuing the king of the kingdom and his righteousness and having more of his kingdom come into your character and your spirit and your life so that you can extend his kingdom in a greater way? Is that really the passion of your waking thoughts? If not, there's grace to get there. And 
the Lord wants you to get there. He wants to give you that beautiful thing. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. Now, I know I take a lot of criticism from both Catholics and Protestants about, about this, but the reason I study Eastern Orthodox theology, the reason I study the ancient church fathers, uh, the Latin tradition, which became the Roman Catholic Church, the Reformers, and the Evangelical tradition, all of which have very different mindsets about Scripture and, and how to interpret it and so forth, is because Jesus said, I will build my church. And to believe that we can't get some insights into Scripture from what great men of God have, have thought Scripture says throughout the centuries, and it's just me and the Holy Spirit and my personal interpretation, it's just so arrogant that it's hard to even understand why people think that way. But that's the predominant mindset of our day. Me, the, myself, the Scriptures, and, and hopefully the Holy Spirit helping me, and, and it's our own private interpretation. But but Peter said, no scripture is a matter of private interpretation. And there is, a, there is a place for understanding what other godly men have thought the scriptures meant. Now, in particular, one of the things that you'll get out of any of the writings of church fathers for the first 1,000 years was the unity of the church had to be protected above all else. Once a kingdom is divided against itself, it's laid waste. Europe was one time Christendom. Now, the, the demographers say approximately 4% consider themselves to be Christian, and somewhere between 1% to 2% have anything in their lifestyle that backs that up. If you think that can't happen in America, they say that about 4% of people under 30 are going to church in America today. In other words, we'll be there in less than a generation if something drastic doesn't change. And to just do things the same old way, I don't think so. Not for me. Matthew 13 is seven parables of the kingdom. i got to move along here. Uh, the, the crucial uh, crux, climatic scene of Matthew, Jesus says, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And that's in a three-chapter section of his confrontation with the leaders of Israel. Uh, just a couple things from Mark. Jesus was saying to them, truly I say to you, there's some of you who are standing here who will not taste death until the, they see the kingdom after it's come with power. Uh, now, I don't, there's lots of debates of exactly what that means. But he's saying some of these live people here are going to see the kingdom after it's come with power, while they're still living. This cannot be thousands of years in the future, nor after, after the second coming of Christ. Whatever way you interpret all that to me, it certainly can't be that. It has to be something to do with that current generation. Mark 14, 25 says, Truly I say, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. If you read carefully John's gospel, you'll see that Jesus drank wine with the disciples after the resurrection. And just in case we have any fighting fundamentalists in here, uh, it's hard to defend that it was grape juice. Uh, <laughs> but I'm not going to go there. Uh, I don't think so. Um, in Luke and Acts, which uh, at one time some people thought were one verse, here's some other ones. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. 
Now, if you haven't read Luke 1 and 2 recently, you know, after the angel appears to Mary, or well, first of all, the vision Zechariah has and so forth, and then there's several people who prophesy out of that, including Elizabeth, Mary, the, what's called the Magnificant, uh, um, what's the guy's name that's in the temple? Um, Zacharias in the temple, and then, uh, of course, Anna, and so forth. So, um, you know, he's basically saying this guy's going to fulfill what all the Psalms and prophets have said, that he's going to have the throne of his father David, and he'll reign, and his kingdom will have no end. Sounds very similar to what Isaiah 9, there will be no end to the increase of his kingdom or his peace, right? Uh, Luke 9, he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. That's his first time he sent some people out, in which were the 12. Later in Luke 10, he sends 70 others. Also in Luke 9, but I say to you truthfully, there are some are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Again, it can't be the second coming or final judgment. Luke 12, but seek first his kingdom, all these will be added to you. Uh, Luke has a thing called the Sermon on the Plain, which... Uh, has a lot of overlap with the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, but this is, on the Sermon on the Plain, you hear this. Don't be afraid, little flock. Your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Now, I have always loved that verse. If, if I can't think of a more comforting verse to think about uh, when you're struggling with anything. You know, whatever trials, struggles, whatever, it's because your God loves you. And he's capable of bringing you deeper under his reign and more Christ-like. He can make you a Christ-like businessman, even if you were Bernie Madoff. Uh, he could make you a more Christ-like husband, even if you were a terrible husband. He can make you a more Christ-like church member, uh, a more Christ-like father. Uh, he Cheer up, little children. Don't be afraid. He, if you're struggling with a besetting sin, if you're really serious before God, and if you're not, you can confess, I'm not serious before God. <laughs> and he can give you grace to become serious. You can actually start with, Lord, I don't even have any desire to really radically follow you. And as long as that's not some flippant, like what happens a lot of times you, you'll hear and some people confess their sins in sort of a desperation to get a hold of God, and others are like, yeah, you know, I killed my third roommate this week. Uh, you know, it's starting to be a pattern, but, I, you know, oh, well, what the heck? <laughs> you know, some people do kind of confess their sins that way to you. And, uh, you know, like it's a fact, but I'm not going to particularly get concerned about it. Um, Acts 1-3, he presented himself alive to them after suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now, when you read the very ends of the Gospels and the start of Acts before the ascension, know this, Jesus clearly came to bring the kingdom to the whole world. His mission was to conquer the hearts of men from the inside out through a community of believers that lived for his glory, that manifested his kingdom. He was serious about it. Now, none of us are serious about it enough but by God's grace, hopefully we'll get more serious about it as we grow in the Lord. But when you're really serious about something, you're going to give the most important instructions. There's a few men in the audience who have kids. I can guarantee you that first time you and your wife went out for a date when the, when the oldest kid was like a nine and, 
or eight and you had to have a babysitter and so forth, you were really serious about the instructions to the babysitter. If you, you know, most, a lot of wives, if they're, especially if they're administrative, will written out the instructions. <laughs> you know, here's the number for 911 is 911. <laughs> you know, uh, here's my cell phone number. You know, I remember the first time we went out when uh, Carla was old enough to babysit uh, for like an hour. We were just testing it out. We went to Elsa's on Linden. We're, le- you know, we're less than a mile away. We called home like four times. <laughs> Everything okay there? Any fires? You know, <laughs> just one fire? Okay, not too bad. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, uh, so Jesus is, well, all I'm trying to say here is Jesus is speaking about the things concerning the kingdom of God because what else would he talk about? This is the critical mission. Paul, when he's arrested and he's living in Nero's, uh, under Nero's uh, government and he's uh doesn't know yet, based on what he says in Philippians 1, he doesn't know yet that Nero's going to kill him. Uh, and, and he basically says, if I have my choice, I'll go on for fruitful labor. Uh, God had another plan. But, uh, and so did Nero, uh, who was, ironically, evil men can be God's instruments. But he's, it says this about him. During that last period of his life, he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming just anything, proclaiming the four spiritual laws, complaining religious uh, ideas, can, uh, proclaiming, um, you know, playing bingo. No. He's proclaiming the kingdom of God. He's getting to the deeper heart of the message uh, and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness unhindered. John, moving right along because I got to hurry. John replied, my kingdom doesn't originate from this world. I could give you a lot more on John. But when it says the kingdom of of God, over and over, it's referring to this idea here. The Greek word ek, or um, the Greek word for of, it means basically a kingdom not deriving from this world. Not, you know, we've reinterpreted that because of our, because of English uh, translations to mean that it's a kingdom that's all about heaven and God. What the kingdom of God means is a kingdom that has its origins in God and heaven. But it's a kingdom very much for this earth. And that's what Jesus is telling Pilate. There's, he's saying, you're the kingdom of the Jews. You're the king of the Jews. He goes, my kingdom doesn't derive from this realm. And frankly, it's only, uh, as we'll see, it's, it is a threat to your kingdom, but not in the way you think. There's not going to be any any armies mowing down the Roman armies. We're we're gonna we're gonna mow down Rome, but in a very different way. Rome's gonna break up, and we'll pick up the pieces. But as the kingdoms of this world are progressively going to fall apart, and if the church gets the right message and turns around and begins to focus on the right things, we'll be able to pick up the pieces because civilization is is embraced Western humanistic, Roman, Greco-Roman humanistic. Every culture of the world has embraced that as its foundation now, except for a few Islamic cultures. And it will fall apart, therefore. Will we really be significantly able to pick up the pieces as the church did in the first five centuries? The church saved what was savable from Rome, namely people. 
flipping over. Paul, we already talked about what he said in Acts. I like in Acts 14, 21 through 23. I wish I could leave this one out, so do you. Uh, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. That's a promise. Uh, uh, thank you, Lord. Um, 1 Corinthians 4, 20, for the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. Going back to the last verse, don't you wish we could sort of take that cross thing out sometimes? <laughs> uh, well, unfortunately, the church has been trying to do that many times in many ways throughout the centuries, not the least of which is today's prosperity gospel and things like that. But I'm sorry, it doesn't work that way. He rescued us from the domain that is the kingdom, the control of darkness. Do you know, before you came to know God in a regenerate conversion way, and began to be an active disciple of God in a total way, you were held in bondage to do all kinds of stuff that you knew you ought not to be doing. Say all kinds of things you ought not to say. Peter says you yourself are being built up into living stones, into a spiritual house. You're being made into a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Verse 9 in the same chapter Notice the caps. The caps are quotes from, from Exodus uh, 19, uh, verse 5 and 6. But you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's what God intends the church to be. A kingdom of priests, kings, offering spiritual sacrifices, proclaiming, not like, would you possibly consider... Uh, you know, asking Jesus to get in the back seat of your car and come in your life in a non-lordship kind of way if it's not too much inconvenience. No, it was to proclaim Jesus is the king. He's here to set you free. He can give you a whole new life, but you can't have it in outside of his terms. He, You have to receive him as Lord of your life. And when you do, he has a much better plan for, than your plan. The five books of Moses, uh, we just said that Peter's quote is from these verses. Now, therefore, if you'll indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be a treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you'll speak to the people of Israel. Now, I listed a few psalms that are the more most messianic kingdom psalms there. You could study them on your own if you want. We'll go back through them in detail later in this uh, but those are some of the most obviously kingdom-oriented psalms. Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Okay, Jesus, the right hand means he's presently there and, and he's currently reigning. He's holding every atom together in the universe. Uh, he raises up nations and tears down nations. He raises up economies and tears down economies. He calls people to know him. Uh, Etc. He raises up the church and and all these kind of things, and he's going to make his enemies a footstool for his feet, which is his body. Now, interestingly, he, it, that's a time word. Until he's going to sit, he's going to keep doing this until the enemies are underneath the feet. Romans 16, 20, God, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That psalm is the most often quoted psalm in the whole Bible. It's quoted seven times in the New Testament alone. 
I wish we could go through the prophets more. Isaiah has so much about the kingdom and the king and the servant king and and all these things, but it says concerning Jesus, uh, you know, a, a scripture here that's read every year at Advent, it's on Christmas cards. A child will be born to us, the government will be on his shoulders, and there will be no end to the increase of his government of his peace. Despite the fact that the church began to prophesy the losing of ground and the decreasing of the kingdom uh, in, its, in, in a lot of the popular eschatologies that, took, that began to capture the church 125 years ago, nevertheless, despite that, the minuscule vision and the reduction of Christianity, the church has grown from 3 million to over 300 million in Africa alone. The church is exploding in Central America and South America. The church is exploding in Southeast Asia, even in China. There's only a few nations that include a few of the Arab nations, Japan, and mostly the Western nations that have bought into a spirit of unbelief in, in, a, in a Christianity that has no power and no big vision, that the church is not exploding. Uh, Micah, for instance, in the Minor Prophets, has a great eight verses on that, and he quotes Isaiah 2, 2 through 4, which is basically, I'll end with that. It'll come about in the last days, which Peter tells us started in Acts 2, the, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be raised above the mountains, and all the nations will stream to it, saying, teach us the law of the Lord. For the law shall go out from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. They'll, you know, beat their swords into plowshares and so forth. The idea is that beginning with the life of Christ, the first event of Christ, his sinless life, his miracles, his announcing the kingdom, his sacrificial servant death, his resurrection, the outpouring of his spirit, the birth of his church, the kingdom is going to act like mustard seed till it fills the earth. The kingdom is going to act like leaven until it fills the earth. And we are part of that, and it's happening now. Amen.